Thank you, Brother Stewart. Hello, Grace family. Trust you are well this morning. Um, it was a little bit chilly outside this morning, so you, I think you picked the right service. God, God bless you. We just want to uh, thank you so much for welcoming us, Terry and I, uh, to the fellowship of uh, the Grace family. From the first Sunday that uh, we showed up at the doors, uh, we were greeted warmly. We have been uh, well-received. We, we thank you so much for that. Uh, we're sharing with the early service that this morning a number of our folks sent me either an email or a text just telling me they're praying for the service this morning. And that means so much. That's such an encouragement. And if you are among those, we, we just want to thank you for that. This morning, we're going to look at the closing chapters of the book of Job. So if you have your Bible, your uh, cell phone, or your iPad, whatever else you're using, turn to Job chapter 38. We're not going to be reading or looking at the entirety of these five chapters, but we do want to use these as a launching place for our comments this morning. So we'll start in Job chapter 38. You may or may not be familiar with the legend of the phoenix, uh, the story has been told for thousands of years in many languages, in many cultures. And while there are variations to the story, the phoenix is considered to be a mythical bird, a beautiful bird with colorful plumage, which after living a long life, dies in a fire of self-conflagration and is buried in its own ashes only to rise from those ashes and be given new life the phoenix. It's believed that the legend grew out of man's desire to explain something about this mystery of life and death and the afterlife. And it really is a mystery, isn't it? I mean, we come into this world without, you know, anything to do on our part. We haven't done anything to come into this world. We're going to die, uh, although we try to push that down the road. We are aware of it, but it's hard for us to even imagine that. And even more so, it's hard to imagine what the afterlife is all about. Uh, that's true from the beginning of time. Uh, men have always wondered what is coming after this life. And at one time or another, all of us are going to be thinking about that. We're going to be pondering, what is the meaning of life? How long am I going to be here? What is my purpose for being here? And does anything really exist beyond the grave? And it's usually during times of personal trials, suffering, or extended seasons of affliction that we think about things uh, like this. And that's really what the book of Job is all about. If you're familiar with Job's story, then you know that he was a man who had everything, but then lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost everything but his life here in the opening chapters of the book. And the way that he lost these things was in a sudden and shocking manner. And what makes this uh, so hard for us to come to grips with is that early in the book, Job is described as one of the greatest people of the East. And making matters even worse, he is described in Job chapter 1 is one who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So what happened with Job? Why, why did he lose everything that he had? I thought life was all about uh, the good people were supposed to prosper while it was the bad people 
who were supposed to lose everything that they had. Certainly that's what Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, told him repeatedly throughout the content of this book. But as you and I know, God is good and just, and bad things do happen to good people, just as good things happen to bad people. Life isn't always fair. And when you and I see unfair things beginning to happen, we may be tempted to think, well, yeah, I believe in God, but, but the God I believe in is really remote. He's so far away from my circumstances. He pays very little attention to the details of my life. He interacts with me in no meaningful way. And we may be tempted to feel that way when difficult circumstances arise. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that that's not the case. We believe in the redemptive and the resurrective power of the gospel. We know that when Job asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? That we know there is an answer. God gives an answer. Yes, Job, he will live again. We're assured of that fact because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died was buried and rose again. And because Christ lives, those who are, who are in Christ Jesus will live also. But if you look at chapter 2 of this, well, don't look there. Let me just point this out. Job chapter 2, verse 8. We're told that Job is sitting in the ashes. Everything's been taken away from him. He has sores and boils all over his body, and, and he finds this cool place of ashes in which to sit simply to find relief for his aches and pains that have been afflicted upon him. He has a group of friends who come to him, and these friends are offering counsel to Job. They're trying to explain to Job why he has suffered the misfortune that he had. They tell Job that, Job, obviously some sin has come into your life, and you're not forsaking that sin. You're not repenting of that sin. You're not confessing that sin. You're holding on to it, and as a result of you holding on to this sin, God is inflicting this punishment upon you. But their presuppositions as well as their conclusions would be proven to be false. Throughout all of this, Job maintained his integrity he believed that God was good, but he struggled to understand why he was being subjected to all of this pain, all of this torture, all of this personal loss that he was. And so really the book of Job deals with a very simple question that we have asked throughout the ages, and that is, where is God when life hurts? Where is God when life hurts? What you and I know that Job did not know is that early in the book, there was a conversation that was taking place between God and Satan. Satan had come to God, and he asked permission to try Job. In fact, basically what Satan said to God was, why shouldn't Job love you? Look at how good you've been to him. You've given him all of these things. No wonder Job looked. I'll tell you, if you let me take some of those things away, then we'll see if Job really loves you. And so in an almost shocking way, God gives Satan permission to attack his servant, Job. And now, here in the closing chapters of, of Job's story, Job is going to meet God in a way that he could not have foreseen, could never have imagined. 
Remember, he's a God-fearing man, but he's about to meet God in a dramatic and life-transforming way. And God's revelation of himself with regard to human suffering is seen in these last five chapters of the book in three extended monologues, which first deal with how God rules his earth. God's going to tell Job, this is the way I created, this is the way I rule my earth. And then in the second series, he's going to tell God how, tell Job how he overrules his enemies. Job, you may think that other things act against me and can overpower me, but no, no, I overrule that which I have created. I overrule all of those who stand opposed to me. And then in the last section, we're going to see how Job restores his elect how Job is going to rise from this and how God is going to demonstrate to Job that despite all of these adversities that have come upon him, God had a purpose for those. And Job is going to emerge as one who has been meeting with God. So I want us to look first of all at these first uh, two chapters, chapters 38 and 39, and we'll just dip into chapter 40 briefly. Let me set this up. Because at the end of chapter 37, or during chapter 37, one of Job's friends by the name of Elihu uh, has given Job counsel. And it sounds on the surface like this is good counsel, but obviously God is going to say, well, it doesn't go far enough. And while Elihu speaks, there's this storm coming. We see in the language of this chapter where there's, there's an approaching storm. And as this storm comes, it's going to serve as a harbinger of God's entrance into the story. And I want you to notice here in the first verse of chapter 38, God makes his majestic appearance. And the text tells us this, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and I want you just to stop there for a second. And I want you to notice that it is the Lord who is answering Job. The Lord's not saying, I'm going to talk to Job and Job's friends now. No one else. I'm going to answer Job. Now, why is that? The reason is that Job was the one who was being afflicted. Job is the one who was going through all the pain and through all, through all the suffering. And it is in our times of pain and guilt, if we're careful to listen, that we'll find that the Lord is speaking his message directly and specifically to us as well. We have to be listening for what the Lord has to say. As we go through times of grief, through times of pain, through times of trial, through times of suffering, we need to be listening to what God is saying to us through those difficult times. And so here the Lord speaks, and he's going to silence all voices. He asked this question, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He could have addressed that to everyone, but he's addressing it to Job right now. Job, I know you're a righteous man. I know you're a good man, but you're speaking words without fully knowing me or what I'm doing. And then he challenges Job, who is his principal contender. And he says this, dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. In other words, God's being sarcastic, if you will, ironic. He's telling Job, if you have all the answers, then you explain to me what's going on. 
And that phrase, it's one that comes out of the old uh, King James language. It's the idea of when, when he talks about dressing like a man, it's gird up the loins, which basically means to, to tuck your robe into your belt and get ready for action. What God is about to do is he's going to engage Job in a contest of words. And he's going to see if Job's words or God's words are the ones that are sufficient to explain Job's circumstances. So in other words, God is saying to Job, man up, man up. We're about to have this contest and we're about to see who is really in control. So chapters 38 and 39 are filled with questions. They're just over and over questions. You can go through those two chapters. You can just circle all the question marks. God is posing rhetorical questions at Job, not to get an answer because the answers are clear. The answers are apparent. But God will say things like, Job, have you done what I've done? Can you do what I have done? And then he intersperses those with, with other questions like, who? Who do you think you are? What? What have you done? that I should be impressed with what you've done. And all these questions are designed to set Job back on his heels, rendering him helpless in crafting a response to God. Basically, God is saying, the entire inanimate world that I have made in chapter 38 is because an intelligent being caused it to be so. There's no other explanation. I did it because I could. I did it because... I wanted to. I did it because I did it. No thinking person is able to offer a legitimate retort to God's exclusive claims. God is God. We are not. He made all things. He rules over all things that he has made. And you and I would do well to regularly ponder that truth, especially when we're going through difficult times. When he gets to chapter 9, God moves away from the inanimate world to the animate world. He, he says, I made these beings. I made these creatures. Do you think you can explain how certain animals carry out their daily routine? Do you think you can explain? No, you can't, Job. It's because I have made it. Do you? Will you? They're scattered throughout the chapter. And he becomes quite clear in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 39. God asked this question, is it by your understanding? Is it by your command? Do you have the answers for me? And the answer is clear, no, no. I have no answer to you, God. All of this, the animal world, the, the inanimate world, all of this, it's your doing. So as chapter 40 opens, we find the most direct question of all, being addressed, the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Think about that for just a moment, because like you and me, when we complain about our circumstances, we're a lot like Job. We'll say, God, I'm not, I'm not finding fault with you. I'm just trying to figure this out. Me, a fault finder, I, I never meant to find fault with you or your ways. But isn't it interesting 
That a direct confrontation with God will expose the hidden thoughts and motives of our hearts? You thought about that? A direct confrontation with God will really reveal what's going on inside of us. You see, what's happening here is Job is not, e not only meeting the Lord, he's meeting himself in a new and unexpected way. And once our suffering is seen through God's eyes, it takes on a completely new meaning. Do any of you suffer joyfully? I mean, really, suffer. And while you're suffering, you're, you're singing hymns. It's doubtful that that's the case. But when we have the opportunity to see through God's eyes, through God's perspective, our suffering takes on a completely new meaning. That's because whenever we see God as he really is, we see ourselves as we really are. It's really interesting as we go through these chapters that the Lord doesn't really come down on Job and with, with a lot of declarative statements, with a lot of accusations, but he asks questions. The Lord asks questions of us. And the reason the Lord asks questions of us rather than just pounding us with declarations is to force us to think, to force us to reason. Why am I, why am I going through this? What, what purpose would God have for me going through this difficulty that I'm going through? So Job here is being challenged to consider that if indeed all things are in the hands of a sovereign God, then maybe, just maybe, his suffering is a part of God's sovereign plan. So look at his reply. God has spoken through two chapters. And now in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, we read, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I shut up. I'm not going to say anymore. He says, I have spoken once and I will not answer Twice, and I will proceed no further. As if Job has not been humbled enough by his circumstances. This once wealthy man was reduced to poverty. This man who once had good health was now critically ill. This man who once had a loving family had no family other than a wife who told him to curse God and die. Despite being the subject of this story, Job has now been reduced even further to simply a spectator's role in what's taking place. You see, in life, there's really only one leading actor. It's not us. It's not Job. It's not his friends. It's God. And one of the most important lessons any of us will ever learn in this life is the role that we have been called upon to play, as well as the role that belongs only to a sovereign God. So with that much established, 
the Lord is now ready to offer his second speech. He has told us how he rules the earth. Now he's going to tell us how he overrules his enemies. In chapter 6 and verse 40, we notice that the storm is still there. The Lord answered Job again out of the whirlwind and said, and then he repeats the earlier challenge to Job. Man up, Job. Gird up your loins. Dress for action because I'm about to ask you some more questions. So he throws down the gauntlet here with even greater verbal force. And we read in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 40, Job, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm, my God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And once again, the implied answer is no. No, I can't answer to you, God. And here God is about to explain how not only does he rule his earth, but how he overrules those who oppose him. Part one of his speech focused on his oversight of creation, and, and now part two, he tells us how he governs his world in sovereign justice. Chapters 40 and 41, if you're familiar with the book and you've read it recently, you know there are two uh, creatures who are described in this section. The first is behemoth. The second is leviathan. You'll see them in chapters 40 and 41. And the identity of these two beings have been the subject of much theolog theological discussion throughout the centuries. The behemoth is introduced, for example, in verse 15 of chapter 40. We don't really know what that word means, but this being has been described or depicted as a large, strong beast that possesses an insatiable appetite, just wanting to eat things up as fast as it can. It's described as being untamable by man. No human being is any match for this creature. And while the writer of Job seems to be speaking of an actual creature with which Job and his friends would have been familiar, he appears to be employing the imagery of this beast in order to portray an even greater enemy. The same is true of Leviathan, who is described in detail in chapter 41. We're first introduced to that creature in chapter 3 and verse 8 of Job, and it's also mentioned in two of the Psalms as well as in Isaiah's prophecy. And there it's referred to as a serpent or a dragon. And a number of commentators have attempted to describe this as a, a mythical sea monster who superstitiously was supposed to have brought havoc and chaos and confusion to those who navigated the seas. Whatever it was, the reference to these two creatures would be one that would have been familiar and conjured up thoughts of terror and dread. I want to suggest to you that Leviathan is possibly a reference to Satan himself. It makes perfect sense because Satan is introduced at the beginning of this book in chapters 1 and 2, and it seems, seems only logical that we'd find him again at the end of the book, serving as bookends, if you will, to the entire story of Job that is taking place here. Satan is the adversary of mankind. 
We have his introduction at the beginning of the book. His presence is still lurking here at the end of the book. And yet the point for his being mentioned here is so that God can say he is the one, God is the one who remains in sovereign control. Despite all that's happened to you, Job, I'm still in charge. Yes, Satan has attacked you, but I am still the one in control. In chapter 41, verse 11, he declares, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Think about that. What is left out of that phrase, whatever is under the whole heaven? Nothing. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. That means everything, everyone, including the relentless enemy of our souls. So Leviathan, I suggest to you, is a representation of Satan. But what about behemoth? It's been suggested, given the description that we find here, that this ravenous, devouring beast is a portrait of death. Proverbs 27.20 comes to mind when it speaks of death and destruction never being satisfied. In other words, death lays claim to all of us. You cannot escape it. That's bad news. But thank God there's good news. What the Lord has been pleased to reveal to Job is that both Leviathan, the personification of terror and undiluted evil, and behemoth, the beastly embodiment of death itself, are under God's sovereign control. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Satan and death are both under God's sovereign control? That's what the book is about. They have no power to inflict pain. They have no power to inflict loss apart from God's providential permission. These two figures, Behemoth and Leviathan, are not merely images employed by the writer to give color to the story. But they're introduced in order to make the point that God and God alone is able to keep evil on a short leash. Which is another way of saying that neither death nor the devil is able to do anything in your life that God does not permit. If you've read and studied this book, and I think most of us probably have at one time or another, we already know that to be true. We believe in a, in a God who's in control of all things. Back in chapters 1 and 2, we, we saw that Satan was limited in the degree to which he was able to inflict Job. And here at the end of the story, that, that truth is confirmed. Martin Luther put it this way. He admitted that there was a devil, but he said the devil is God's devil. In other words, that devil can only do what God permits him to do. Now, granted, it's not until the New Testament that we learn what it costs God to gain the final victory over Satan, sin, and death. You see, man, by his ability, and I'm speaking of us, we can say man generically, but no, us, let's take us. You and I are unable in our limited strength ever to overcome evil. We try. Our New Year's resolutions come crashing down on January 2nd. 
The greatest enemy of our souls can only be defeated through the redemptive suffering of pure goodness and absolute righteousness. Let me say that again. The greatest enemy of our souls can only be defeated through the redemptive suffering of pure goodness and absolute righteousness. Enter Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He tells us that the reason that the Son of God became a man was so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We ought to stand up and shout amen. Because that victory, that once and for all victory, was won at the cross where Christ died and where the last enemy, which is death, was dealt a fatal blow. Death no longer has dominion over you. So by now, in our story, Job has listened to God two rounds of speech. He's been sufficiently humbled by the Lord the Lord whom he never fully understood. And by now he recognizes his presumption in questioning the ways of the Lord. So in deep contrition, he crafts a second response. And we see it in chapter 42. These six verses are often the ones we think about when we think about Job and him emerging victorious through his circumstances. But let me read them again, at least point out some of them. Very perceptive. Verse 2, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 3, therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Down in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Where was Job sitting? In the ashes. When the text says that Job repented, it doesn't mean to imply that Job is looking now at his friends and saying, you guys were right. <laughs> there was some sin in my life that I needed to confess. He's not saying that. He's saying that he himself had been presumptuous with regard to God. God, I, you yourself described me as a good and righteous man. I don't understand why all this has happened. Job is now saying, by saying that, I was very presumptuous. So now he's in the presence of this altogether holy God, and he confesses. He confesses his presumptuousness. He bows in humble submission to God. Don't overlook the references to ashes in this story. Don't let it escape you. Job has spent the better part of 40 chapters sitting in the ashes, the cool ashes where he, could, where he could find some measure of comfort and soothing 
to the boils and sores that had been afflicted upon his body. It's a terrible scene. But it's been transformed now into a scene of worship. From ashes to worship. What made the difference was that he saw God. Face to face, if you will. He had at last entered into that intimate relationship with his creator. A relationship for which he had longed, but which he also rever reverently feared. Job recognized that God doesn't arbitrarily permit evil, but in many cases, he commands it. He commands it, he controls it, and he even uses it for his good purposes. If you don't believe that, how do you explain what's going on in our world today? If you're finding it hard to imagine, then consider that the most despicable, damnable deed in human history occurred when Jesus Christ died upon the cross in what is called, in Acts 2.23, according to the definite plan, plan and foreknowledge of God. This God is able to use even supernatural evil in the accomplishment of his good purposes. He can use, and he does use, the darkest invasions in our lives for our good and his glory. You see, it takes fire to refine gold. But that is precisely what God is doing in your life and in my life through the trials, tribulations, and struggles that we face. And you and I have to learn that lesson in unforgettable ways because that awareness alone is what's going to be able to sustain us when times of tribulation and tragedy strike, and they will if they haven't already. For some of you, they have already struck with relentless force. You could stand now and you could give testimony to the fact that God has sustained you, that God has strengthened you, that God has supported you through some otherwise unbearable physical, emotional, and spiritual struggles. In these recent days, it's no mystery, therefore, that this book ends the way that it does. Look with me at verses 7 through 17 of this last chapter, chapter 42. And here we see how God restores his elect. God rules his creation. God overrules his opponents, his enemies. And now God restores his elect. If you'll notice with me, and I don't know if you pay attention to this kind of thing when you read the scriptures or not, but these many chapters have been written in poetic form. You see the verse, you see the way it's printed in your Bibles. When you get to verse 7 of chapter 42, you'll notice that it reverts to a narrative form. In other words, it's like a storytelling, just regular sentences and paragraphs put together. So the story's going to come to a conclusion, and what happens is that Job's friends are severely reprimanded by God 
for their shallow and their error-laden counsel that has been given to Job during his time of trial. But in contrast, God is going to speak very highly of Job. If you look at verses 7 and 8, for example, there's four times in those two verses where Job is referred to by God as my servant Job. He doesn't say that about these other guys. In fact, it is through the intercession of Job on behalf of his three friends that they too are restored. And you may remember from early in the book, Job also interceded for his family. It was his, it was his practice to intercede. And when I think of intercession, that is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing for us. The next time you go through a trial or, or if you're going through a, a very difficult time in your life right now, Think of this, Jesus is praying for you. Our Lord Jesus is interceding. He's praying for you right now. He knows your pain. If anybody understands our pain, it's Jesus because he endured such pain of his own. And notice that it says, as, as Job prayed, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Our Father in heaven will never refuse the intercession of his only begotten son on behalf of those who are his. That should give us great joy. That should give us great comfort. That in our deepest times of affliction, Jesus is praying for us and the Father is responding in love. In the aftermath of Job's affliction, we're told that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as much in terms of possessions, family, and length of days. And verse 12 adds that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He was great at the beginning. He's greater after having gone through this trial. So the story comes to a, a close here, a conclusion. And we find him surrounded by family and friends at a, a celebratory meal. They're gathered around a table and they're feasting. And, and perhaps, just perhaps, this is a foreshadowing of the heavenly banquet that all of us in Christ, as God's elect, will one day experience in the presence of our Lord, the one who, whose own suffering gives meaning to ours. Imagine sitting around the table one day in heaven and Jesus describing for you the purpose of his suffering in terms that are so graphic and so real that will make you appreciate what he went through on your behalf more than you ever can on this earth. It's highly significant, is it not, that the Lord's blessing does not come until the very end of the book. Job has to go through all this. 41 chapters of suffering. We don't, we don't know how long Job's suffering was. Could have been a few weeks, a few months, a few years. We don't know, but it's not to the end of the book that the course of the trial has run and God pronounces his blessing. It may be that way in your life. You may have gone through Long, lengthy trials, terrible, difficult trials, affliction, suffering, pain, loss, tragedy, agony. 
for years with no relief. But I will assure you on the authority of the word of God that there will be an understanding and you will accept graciously and in love that understanding of why it happened. There may be glimpses of, of God showing you uh, some measure of his mind and his heart as he works through your trial now. But generally speaking, that's not going to happen. Generally speaking, the full explanation will not come until that day we are in his glorious presence. The book of Job, if you're not familiar with it, let me just recommend it for your study. It may be the oldest book in the Bible. It may have been the first book of the Bible to be written. And it deals with the problems that, that mankind has uh, experience from the beginning. What's the purpose of life? Is there a God? Am I accountable to this God? What happens when we die? Is there even an afterlife? And for Christians who still ask the question, where's God when it hurts? It was never explained to Job entirely why he went through all that he endured. Job's friends had come to him and tried to offer an explanation. Job, the reason you're suffering is because you're a sinner. <laughs> Fess up, man. Repent. God will bless you. Job denied that. And Job was right. But as God revealed himself, Job also saw that the only proper course of action was to trust God even when answers were not forthcoming, even when life did not make sense, even when it defied all logic. You see, Job knew nothing about that heavenly wager between God and Satan in the early chapters of the book. And without knowing it, Job had the honor, he was being given the honor of being used by God to refute the adversary and to silence the slanderer. If the book of Psalms had been available to Job, and they weren't, he might have recited these words from Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, now when? After I was afflicted, I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. The fact that God does not explain the mystery of suffering indicates that he wants us to trust him. As parents, how often have you said that to your child? But dad, but mom, trust me. Just trust me. Suffering and adversity can sharpen your awareness of how thoroughly God has already been at work in your life. And this calendar year, may well have been and may continue to be for a while longer the most difficult year of your life. 
If you could have written the script to 2020, you would have written it a lot differently. But you aren't the one writing. God is. And his providence is never without purpose. Rarely, however, does God see fit to reveal his eternal purpose for our present suffering. So for now, we wait. We wait, committing ourselves to the God who alone is worthy of our trust. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we find words that help us along that path. I'll summarize some of these words. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. A little bit later in the same passage, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Job is the story about worshiping God in the darkness. It's about bowing before the unseen Lord and leaving our most agonizing questions at the foot of his cross. It's about remembering that he is the creator, we are but the creatures. To put it another way, it's about recognizing that he is God and we are not. And that brings us to the most significant aspect of this story. Bringing this in for a landing right now, this is what I want you to hear. This book is about Job. And in a manner of speaking, it's about us as well. This book is about us. But ultimately, bottom line, conclusion, this book is about Jesus. This book is about Jesus Christ. Job prefigured Christ in his blamelessness and in his perseverance through suffering. Therefore, as the ultimate blameless believer, Jesus fulfills the story of Job. In his passion, his suffering, Jesus reached greater depths of, than Job ever could, than his friends ever could possibly imagine. Greater depths of suffering. The drama, the pain, the perplexity of Job find their fulfillment at the cross of Jesus Christ. Try to picture, if you will, for just a moment, the horror and the darkness that surrounded Jesus as he hung suspended between heaven and earth, forsaken by the Father, so that he might save those for whom he was giving his life. And it was then, at that moment, that Job's why questions finally received their answer. You see, as the blameless believer, despised and rejected by men, but ultimately vindicated by God through the resurrection from the dead, his own rising from the ashes, if you will, Jesus fulfilled the drama. He fulfilled the longings of Job for justification and redemption. And he answered the question like no one else could as to why the righteous suffer. 
So Job's story is about Jesus, but it's also about us. It's about Jesus' followers. Every Christian, every Christian can expect to follow at least to some degree in the footsteps of Job, as well as in the footsteps of Jesus. Is it any wonder that Jesus would then caution us to count the cost before deciding to follow him? The Bible makes it clear that our right standing with God is demonstrated by our willingness to identify with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2. We don't often plug into these words, but listen. Paul writes, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. My prayer is that to each one of us here this morning, that God would grant great grace to us, enabling us to bow down before him, especially during times of deep darkness and, and affliction in our lives. Bow down to the one who endured even greater suffering than we could possibly imagine. Why? In order to bring us to himself and to magnify his name in and through us. Not only now, but throughout eternity. I ask you to bow your heads and pray with me just now. Merciful Father, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have comes from your hand. You could in one instant change the entire course of our lives through accident, tragedy, or any unforeseen event. The story of Job is a lesson in acceptance, not of blind resignation, but of believing acceptance that what you do, all that you do, is done well. And so, Father, with happy commitment, we lay our lives before you again this morning in unconditional faith and simple trust. Do with us as best pleases you. Only grant us great grace to do the glory of your great name whatsoever. Do for your glory what you are pleased to send our way. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who overcame sin and death in order that we might have victory in his name. Amen.